This is Line Dance Podcast. I'm Christopher Gonzalez. Hello, and welcome to Line Dance Podcast with Megan Marcelia and Christopher Gonzalez. What is your name? Martha Ogasawada. And what would you say is your primary role in the line dance community? Uh, I think it's many fold. Uh, I am a line dance instructor in Japan. I, I, I live in Japan. Uh, just put that out up front. Um, I'm a line dance instructor, uh, of course, a dancer myself. Um, I am a leader in a line dance club, the Nagoya Crazy Feed. Um, I bring groups of dancers here to the U.S. to attend dance events, and I organize tours. And um, I'm kind of a general go-between between the U- uh, Japan and other countries. Sort of a line dance ambassador across the Pacific. I guess you could say that, yes. How were you first exposed to line dance? Um, I'm also a square and round. I do square dancing and round dancing. And um, I've been doing square dancing and round dancing for 35 years. Um, and line dancing for 25 years. And uh, f- as part of our national square dance convention every year, when the hosting area puts on some kind of demo. So this is, what, 26, 27 years ago. And um, I was in charge of, of deciding what the demo was going to be. And I happened to have some, um, they weren't called, it wasn't called line dancing, it was called country western dancing back then, um, VHS videos that I'd gotten from someone. And so it was that, and I'd also just studied Cajun dancing recently. It was Cajun dancing or country western dancing. And so we decided on country western dancing. And um, we did a demo of a two-step routine, Sweetheart Shottish, and a line dance called The Freeze, which seemed really hard at the time. So about 36 people, I think, all learned the routine and performed it at our National Square Dance Convention. And um, after we practiced once a month for about a year for that, and after the convention was finished, we liked line dancing, well, country western dancing so much that we decided to form a separate club just for that. And that was the birth of our club, Nagoya Crazy Feet. And do you still do those dances that you did back then? Oh, I must, oh the line dances or uh, not really? Well, I, I still occasionally do some couples dancing, but I haven't done the sweetheart shotties in a long time. <laughs> yeah, that uh, in some areas is, is still a classic. I believe that there's a DJ in uh, Santa Barbara, Skip Stecker, who, who says he doesn't see enough shottish. And I'm wondering, are there other dances from back then that, that uh, you have strong memories of that you really enjoyed doing that you wish you could see more people do now? Well, just this weekend, Umbop came on. It's like, oh, I wish I remembered how to do that because I haven't done it for a long time. And it's like, Umbop, yes. I mean, there's a lot of dances like that, of course. And that is one that, that is done to a pop song. I'm curious, are there... Are, are, are there um, styles of music or artists that you gravitate toward when line dancing? Or do you, do you like to keep it country, as so many do? Uh, do you just kind of take it on a case-by-case basis? Uh, are you into rock and roll, pop? What makes you move? All of the above. Um, I, to me, one of the biggest selling points for for line dancing is that the fact that you can dance to so many styles of music and to me that is probably the biggest single drawing point is I really love all kinds of music and I don't want to be um, you know fitted in slotted into just one kind and so I'm able to have 
come across so many wonderful songs that I would have never have found if not through a line dance that went to them. So I'm very thankful to line dancing for turning me on to all kinds of songs that I wouldn't have known about otherwise. And do you do any line dances to songs in other languages from your various travels? Mm, not really. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think the only... For example, like uh, as far as Japanese uh, would go as an example, I think the only line dance I've done that has had Japanese as part of it is Doors of Life by Michael Barr. Yeah. How, how long have you known Michael and Michelle, who are the event directors of this event that we are currently uh, attending or you know, uh, were attending this past weekend, Palm Springs Winter Break? I think we had them as guest instructors at our 10th event. This past uh, November was our club's 25th anniversary event. Um, and so we had them for our 10th event, So, but I met them before that. So probably 17, 18 years, I'm guessing. And actually, it turns out that we met before that at, uh, we used to travel to events, and we, we were both at the same event in Reno, we found, after comparing notes. So that was probably close to 20 years ago, I'm guessing. Yeah, I've I've heard... And probably also said that every relationship in line dance is a long-term relationship. The people that you see and dance with, even if you don't know them well, you'll probably be dancing with for years and possibly even decades to come. Who are some of the other the uh, folks that you have uh, been connected with uh, for the duration of your line dance journey? I know uh, probably at least one of them was here this weekend, uh, Joe Thompson Samansky. Are, are there others, and, and what kind of relationship would you say that you have had with Joe, and uh, and what is uh, her relationship with the club? Um, actually, our longest standing relationship is with Scott Blevins. Um, he was the first person that we brought over, and um, the way that came about was that I'm from Indiana originally, and um, he's also from Indiana, and um, way back a long time ago before, you know, pre-internet days when it was hard to get any kind of information about dancing. And so um, we had limited access to new dances. And, um, you know, it was in the days of, of um, really there weren't even many magazines yet. And then they came out with a magazine called Country Dance Lines. And they had pages of instructors listings in there and, you know, by state. And so I was looking through and, you know, what instructors there were in Indiana. And... Um, someone uh, one of my mother's friends who lived um you know close by did some line dancing and she said oh this this young couple scott and deborah blevins you know they're pretty good and you might like their lessons and so not having ever met them before i just called them up on the phone and said um i'm here from japan i'd like some private lessons and in those days private lessons meant teach me some dances yeah and um, and they said, oh, well, we're going to be, I'm from a town called Crown Point. And they said, we're going to be at a club in Crown Point tonight. You know, why don't you stop by and we can we can talk and, and work it out. And so we met there and it was just an instant connection. And um, And so it turns out that we brought them over to Japan. And it was their first country to go um, teach abroad at. And our first time to have... Um, instructors from overseas and it was just a really fortuitous uh, relationship and for us until then we'd really been more traditional country and at the even back then they were already pushing the boundaries and and um, they were just so cool and the style of dancing was just wow and so we laugh about how 
things could have been very different if they wouldn't have come to Japan, and they really um, have had a big influence. And we've had, Scott was just back with Joe um, last November, and he's been, I don't know, five, six times to Japan, and so very big influence on us for sure. Um, and then he introduced us to Joe, and there used to be a, a video, what was the name of that? Video magazine, they called it, um, that she put out. And so, of course, we took that and we would learn new dances from the video magazine. And, um, you know, so of course we knew who she was. And, and people would record, you know, TV shows with her on it. And, and, and so, you know, she was already famous. And, and in fact, a little aside here was that she wore these really neat skirts. And, and they flared out really, really prettily. They, they like, um, they were just so cool. And this was in the days when we were wearing skirts and boots. And something about her skirts was different. And we were always like envious of her skirts. And it's like, okay, in the video, that's one of those skirts again. It's like, um, and so we went to an event and met her. And it's like, where did you get those skirts? And um, someone named Betty Jean made them. And she was at the event. And so I became a dealer for Betty Jean in Japan and probably sold 200 of her skirts. <laughs> by order. But um, Scott said, would you be interested in bringing Joe Thompson over? And it's like, yeah, but would she come to Japan? He said, I think she might. And so he was actually the go-between for us. And um, we asked her and she said yes. And this is actually, I think Tim came with her, but this was before they were a couple yet. And, um, and she came and obviously played a very important role in our development as well. I'm curious how the club got the idea to start doing events. And with all of the different instructors that you've had over the years, how did you select who would be part of this lineage and this history of the event? Um, the, the very first, what we would count as number one, it wasn't, the name of our event is the Country Crazy Country Dance Festival. We call it CCDF for short. And, um, the first one was still not named that. Um, it was just a get-together, you know, an, an overnight get-together for club members plus a few other people. You know, let's just have a more intense, you know, dancing weekend here. It was the first one. And I think the second one, too. And then Scott, I think we had some instructors from Japan, you know, some other people who were instructors come and, you know, did a kind of a combination event for the third one. And then... Um, it's like it would be really neat to bring someone from overseas. And so we invited Scott and Deborah and um, we just sort of grew from there. But the way we've chosen instructors, um, we often ask, I ask advice of other people. Uh, and in fact, all the instructors who have come, one of the questions they're asked after, after they have been to our event and before they go home is, who would you recommend uh, as a future uh, possibility. And we bring some people over, you know, more than once, but a lot of people just once. Um, we have, it's going to sound really snobbish, but very high standards um, because there's a lot of things that we're looking for in a guest instructors and, and um, we kind of want the total package. And because it's just one or two people a year, that we that we asked to come, so yeah, we're we're pretty selective, 
and, and there's things that we are looking for. So what are those things? <laughs> um, some of them, well, of course, we have to like their choreography, you know, and they have to be really good instructors. Uh, they have to be personable, not only in front of the dancers, but behind the scenes. That's partly because I'm the one who takes care of them. And so, you know, I want someone that's going to be um, appealing personally as well. Um, good dancer. Uh, they hopefully can do a good demo for us. And, uh, yeah. I was actually curious, um, other than Joe and Scott, who are some of the other instructors that you have had visit your event? Um, I think you also mentioned Michael and Michelle. Uh, just to kind of get an idea of who are some of these talented individuals that have made the cut. Well, this year for our 25th anniversary, we actually put out a pamphlet um, showing all of the, because I don't think I could tell you off the top of my head otherwise. And I just happened to have this pamphlet here in front of me so I can go, oh, okay, Scott and Deborah were for our third anniversary, uh, Joe for our fourth uh, for our fifth year, we had Greg Underwood. I doubt if you've heard of him or have you? He is the choreographer of Crazy Legs. Correct. And uh, he was more involved back then, a really good instructor. Uh, he also does ballroom dancing. He lives in Florida, in Hawaii now. Um, seventh year was just our instructors. For eighth year, we had Maggie Gallagher. Ninth year was an uh, instructor from Japan. Tenth was Michael and Michelle. 11th was our own instructors. For 12th year, we had Rachel McKennedy and Paul McAdam. <laughs> this was when... Um, wait a minute. What's the... the um, Masters in Line. They were still part of Masters in Line at the time. For, for our 13th, we had Barry and Darian Amato. 14th, we had John Robinson and Brian McWhorter. Fifteenth, we had Scott and Joe back again. Sixteenth, we had Pim Van Grudel and Daniel Trippett. Uh, for the seventeenth, we had um, one of our own instructors, uh, Toshiko Kawamoto and Sam Arvidsson. Eighteenth, we had Kato Larson and Craig Bennett. Nineteenth, we had Joey Warren and Amy Christensen. And, um, and actually, Scott turned out to be a bonus addition to that. Uh, for the 20th, we had Michael, Michelle again, plus Darren Bailey. 21st, uh, we kind of wanted to bring Joe, but she was still not active back yet again. But she was by our 21st. We had Joe and Simon Ward. 22nd was Linda McCormick and Fred Whitehouse. 23rd was Madison Glover and Niels Polson. 24th was Debbie Rushton and Gary O'Reilly. And then just this past November was Joe Scott and Shane McKeever. And uh, this coming November, it will be Michael and Michelle again. Yay! <laughs> I love it. I've, that is definitely a huge list of people that I personally have found to be very inspirational as choreographers, instructors, and dancers. So I can definitely see the quality you guys aim for. Yeah. I'm curious also, you've mentioned Indiana, mm -hmm. you've mentioned Japan, 
There's something in between there that I'm missing. <laughs> you think so? Yeah. <laughs> what would the story be behind your journey from Indiana, Indiana to Japan? To Japan? <laughs> um, I went over for a year in college. And the story even before that was that I went to a very small liberal arts college called Rich, uh, called Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana. And um, when I was a senior in high school, I got a postcard from my college saying, you have to choose a foreign language. Um, I've always liked being different from other people. I never wanted to be the same. Uh, the most exotic language on that postcard was Japanese. I knew nothing about Japan, had no interest in Japan, but it, well, that's different. I don't know anyone taking Japanese, and so I checked that. Um, when I got to Earlham, I kind of knew that I wanted to study abroad if I could, and it turns out that there was a really good um, program where you could study in Japan for a year. Well, okay, I'm taking Japanese. I'll go to Japan for a year, and ended up going for my junior year and majoring in Japanese studies. And while I was there for the year, I met my husband-to-be, Takashi. Uh, we fell in love, got engaged, and uh, I went back for my senior year. And then after I graduated, I moved back to Japan permanently. And how did line dance come into the picture amidst all of this on the timeline? So, as I said, I've been square and round dancing 35 years, and that's also something that I started in Japan. I did a little bit of old-time square dancing in college. It was actually popular. There was like a live band and, and a live collar. And um, I didn't even know about modern Western square dancing, but it knew something that I liked to do. And so I became aware of the fact that there was square dancing in Japan at the time and uh, got involved with that and formed a club in the city that I live. And, um, and then... As I said, through the national convention demo that we did, that got me interested in country western dancing. And back then, um, we all did both couples dancing and line dancing and partner dancing. It was just all part of the package. I know that when you said square and round earlier, I did not picture Japan. If I were to try to make a mental image of what it looked like back then and what it looks like now, what would I see? I know that here... A lot of the hats and boots and fringe and turquoise have kind of gone by the wayside and people dancing in the bars now are more wearing like the backwards baseball caps and torn jeans, but it's all still line dance. I'm curious, what did the scene look like back then? What is uh, square and round and line dancing like in Japan uh, then compared to now and compared to America? Okay, uh, square and round dancing are totally different from uh, line dancing. So for me, they're totally different. Square and round dancing I do together, and I'm a round dance cure, an instructor as well. Um, but that is a totally separate part of my life as opposed to line dancing. Um, line dancing, for square dancing, we still wear the, the crinolines, the petticoats, and the, and the full skirts, and the, uh, that's still very much worn in Japan, and so I have, you know, a number of petticoats and square dance costumes that I wear. Uh, as I say, that's a separate, separate thing for me. Uh, line dancing, we used to wear the Western clothes, but it's, there are people, we call it honky-tonk dancing in, in Japan, and that's how they differentiate, and there's still a strong honky-tonk population with somewhat of a crossover, but 
what we do is now is line dancing, and we this, we dress the same as you do here. So, you know, casual clothes. Most people wear sneakers. Some people wear boots, but. And where do the dances that are done there tend to come from? I, I know that uh, a lot of people have, have told me that the internet changed everything because now you can see what is being danced in Ireland or South Africa or Canada. And it wasn't always the case. As you mentioned, there were local newsletters before. You would have to have a subscription to somewhere and then you're only getting the dances that they decide to publish. So how did the the dances that were done before make it into the community and how has that changed to the way it is now when i first started line dancing well country western dancing um i would come back to the u.s once a year uh to visit and i would try and hit as many this is when it was uh country western dancing was at its peak probably and uh, there were lots and lots of places to go country western dancing. And so I would go to as many lessons as I could. You know, I would get step sheets or I would try and remember them or write down notes and just learn as many dances as I could. For example, when we had the private lesson with Scott, he probably taught us a dozen dances, you know, and, um, you know, try to learn as many. So our choice of dances in the beginning were whatever it was that I learned while I was here, basically. And, um, and then we started, I started subscribing to a number of magazines. Line Dancer magazine was a big influence. Um, Country Dance Lines, there was a, like a newspaper kind of, I can't remember the name right now, but um, by, there were a number of magazines, and I subscribed to all of them. And then Dance Lines was the name of the video that Joe did. So I, I subscribed to basically everything and um, got our information from that. Uh, the choosing of the dances, and actually for our club, it's still true. We have uh, a dozen instructors in our club of only 30-some dancers. Out of that, a dozen are instructors. Um, and we meet one Sunday a month and dance all day from 10 to 4.30. Um, and then the day before, we have, I guess it would translate as our research day. Um, our instructors get together and... Um, if everyone, a lot of times I assign the dances or they bring dances that they're interested in. We try out maybe a dozen dances in one day and we actually give points to the dances and, um, and then that helps determine what dance we're going to introduce the next month or the next next month. So it's a joint uh, decision and we've actually been giving points to all, all of the dances this weekend and um, and that will help us choose which ones we will then introduce at our research day and then eventually at our club. I am curious what the lifespan of a dance over there tends to be. Because I, I know that here people have uh, noted that things can stick around for a few months and then maybe they get bumped off the playlist. Whereas back in the day, you would dance that probably every weekend for five, ten years. And I'm curious what... Um, what the the general life is of a dance in terms of months or years once it has made the cut? Um, our club is not, I can't speak for everyone in Japan because there are a lot of different dance groups and each, some, the lifespan might be a week, you know. I mean, you know, they introduce it, maybe they'll review it the next week and then it's gone. That's true for a lot of places. It's sort of the same anywhere, I think, where, you know, 
um, at our club personally, uh, when we have, for example, our the dances that were taught our, at our event, our last CCDF, we we make a commitment to keep them alive for at least a year, and so we will review them, uh, you know, quite a bit, and then we have to a spring party and a summer party during the year and they will be danced there and then they will be danced again at open dancing the next year's event so they're almost a guaranteed a year's lifespan and then after that is sort of if people want to keep doing them you know if there's a request for it they will uh be kept alive for a while longer but but it's getting shorter and shorter i can tell it seems to be it's because there's so many dances I mean, better or worse, but there are so many good dances that you want to do, it's that you just can't do them all. And so we try and bring back older dances. For example, this coming year, we, we will be doing a lot of older Michael and Michelle dances. And there's so many good ones, you know, that we will be reviving some of those. And last year, we were doing a whole lot of Joe and Scott dances, you know. That makes sense. It gives people more to dance with those choreographers when they see them at the event. So I was actually curious about the point system and how you assign points. Like what is it about a dance criteria that you look for that may um, award it more of a a higher point or a lower point? We are, I guess we're picky about our choreography too. Um, But one of the reasons we started doing, we used to have, you know, I would choose the dance for this month and then another instructor would choose the dances for the next month. And But we got so that, for example, I like blues music a lot. And so I would, you would sort of look back over the year and see that we were kind of overloaded with bluesy dances, you know, or um, you kind of let your own personal preference take over. And now that it's a group consensus kind of thing, I found that our dances are more even in terms of, um, you know, not just someone's own personal preferences, but um, the, the points are awarded on personal preference to a certain degree. But for example, um, right now we're looking for a lot of beginner dances because um, we have what we call our summer party in the summer in August. And um, we, all of, all of our instructors have their own classes and uh, we encourage all of the beginner dancers, dancers to come and join us at the summer party. And so we we set the playlist way ahead of time. And there will probably be a dozen beginner dances on the on the workshop list. And there will be a, all of the instructors will teach the dances ahead of time to their dan- the beginner dancers. And um, they will be reviewed that day and danced a couple times through. And so it's a good way for dancers who are not hardcore or maybe beginner or just you know occasional going to events kind of person it's a it's an easy way for them to go out and be sociable and so right now we're looking for the dances that we will introduce at our summer party already way way ahead of time so that our instructors can start teaching them and um our criteria, one of the things we often say is that when we're choosing beginner dances, well, it's cute, yeah, but, okay, think about this. You're going to be doing it in your beginner classes at least 50 times. Do you like this dance enough that you want to do it 50 times? That's sort of like our criteria, yeah, for beginner dances. And then for intermediate advanced dances, it's a matter of personal taste. Having seen the way that students learn in 
American events as well as Japanese events, are there any differences that you've noted? And are there any modifications that tend to be made when, say, English-speaking instructors go over to uh, the Crazy Feet event? And in terms of differences, sometimes it can become like a blind spot if, if um, you're just so used to it, it seems normal. For example, are, are, are there any students who like to just see the whole dance all at once at the beginning and do the whole thing and then just repeat it several times for the remainder? Do they prefer to take it eight counts at a time, eight counts up to halfway and then start from the top? What does a, a typical lesson look like at an event where your dancers feel the most comfortable? One of the things we always ask the instructors to do is demo the dance before they teach it. Um, I hate it when instructors just start teaching cold without even letting you hear the music. And a lot of times at events, it's okay, this is the next dance, let me start teaching. And it's like, wait a minute. But, 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 you know, I want to know, I would like to at least hear the music, but preferably see the dance first so that I have a feel for what it is that I'm about to learn. I think it makes it go a lot faster that way. And so we always have them demo a couple walls first. Um, even though it's a, only a one-room event, so it's not as if they're going to go choose any other dances. They're all going to learn the dance, but um, I think it's helpful to see it first. And uh, Generally, they will break it down in sections you know, of eight or whatever, but um, we tend to prefer, instead of always going back to the beginning, uh, I think that, that you spend too much time always doing the beginning of the dance and not enough at the last section, um, so you may do the first 16 counts 10 times and the last 8 counts 2 times. And it's, it's not really, you know, even that way. And so do section 1, do section 2, 1 and 2, then let's do 3, then let's go back to 2, 2 and 3, and then let's do 4, let's do 3 and 4, and, you know, so instead of doing always from count 1. And um, and always trying to hook it up on the be- the end of the dance to the beginning of the dance as you go, so that it's not just a a cold, all of a sudden an ending, then you have to start again. It's like uh, try to always get the flow of the dance going. I guess. Are there any allowances that you make for specific groups like beginners or or intermediate students, whereas say uh, intermediate students? might be more inclined to kind of get through the dance and then just do the reps or beginners they might uh, need visuals or mnemonic devices or tricks Um, are are there are there any things that you overall regardless of language or country or any kind of uh, distinction uh, any any things that you have found are helpful for you when keeping beginners engaged and interested and wanting to move on as well as intermediate students keeping their flame alive. I'm not sure that this ans- this is what you had in mind when you asked, but something that I thought of as you were asking is um, something that the instructors often comment about is that uh, Japanese dancers tend to be very polite, especially at, at our event. We ask all the people in the front rows to squat down as as so that the people in the back can see. And so anytime that the instructors show the next something will have all of the people in front kind of squat down so that the people in back can see their feet. And um, and a lot of times the instructors get kind of power hungry and they get the hands, okay, everyone down, up, down. It's like they kind of get into the playing with the dancers like that. But um, people tend to be, and we 
usually tend to, because the hall where we usually have the event is a long room, we will rotate the dancers quite a bit. Um, something else I was going to mention and forgot earlier was that I think a characteristic of Japanese dancers that they tend to be willing to try almost anything. Um, and people often say that um, you ask them to do arms and everyone will do the arms or they will try and do the arms and, and um, you know, they'll put in something and everyone will do it. And so I think that in general, Japanese dancers are pretty game to try almost anything. And you very seldom see people not even trying the workshop. Pretty much everyone who comes to our event wants to, to try and get all of the dances. So That sounds like an amazing environment for an instructor. Right. I was thinking the same thing. And I think it's actually an exceptional environment for a dancer, not just the instructor. Um, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, I wanted to first let you know how much I appreciate what you do as an ambassador for line dance, getting groups of people from Japan and coming over to the U.S. and not only exposing them to us, but us to them. It's so amazing the connection that even though the actual spoken language there's a barrier between us. Um, the fact that we can all appreciate the language of dance is amazing. But I, what I wanted to ask was, um, how do you arrange these groups? Because I know they've been to several different kinds of events, and I'm sure it's not the same group every time. That's correct. Um, for example, for this trip, I kind of decide where I want to go next. And um, I'll put together a tour, I guess you'd call it. And I put out a, a flyer and I put a tentative price usually. And um, and I just, you know, take the flyer and pass it out to people. Or a lot of times it's word of mouth. And I will, I have some people who come with me fairly regularly. But, um, you know, a lot of people, this is their first time to come with me. And um, and uh, is whoever wants to come with me can come with me and... Uh, and then I make all of the arrangements for the group. Is there a way that you, I guess, advertise and, and hopefully, I guess, lack of a better term, um, sell it or entice them to make this huge journey and complete culture shock, I'm sure? And to add on to that, what is it that they can get here at uh, one of these events that is not available or is different from back home? Um. Of course, they want to go shopping while they're here. That's, you know, <laughs> always a big draw, things that you can't get in Japan. Um, just the ambience more than anything. It used to be the dances, but lately I've been choosing smaller events on purpose. Because um, I used to, you know, JG2, well, now it's the Line Dance Marathon when it was still JG2, Windy City. I mean, I've been, used to go to a lot of big events. Um, and back then, it seemed like I wanted, it was a way to meet new instructors, number one, um, you know, be exposed to more instructors that we had never met before, uh, learn lots of new dances. And uh, now that's not so important in that it's so easy to get all of the dances online. And, you know, there's videos now and you don't really have to 
to learn the dance in person. I mean, it's always nice to learn it from the instructor, but but not so necessary. You know, you can get there's way more dances that I can get online than I ever need. So so for me, more it's the ambience now and and getting to spend social time with people and uh, to mingle with you know dancers from other countries and and uh, I think that's the big draw and the thing that that I choose about events. And I knew that this was a relatively smaller event. And, uh, you know, I liked the fact that it was one room and everyone would be together for three days and that, you know, you would get to be friends with people. And, and it, it turned out just as I thought it would be that there was a lot of, as you say, there's not a lot of talking because of the language barrier, but there was a lot of nevertheless nonverbal communication going on, I would say. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Hands down. Absolutely. I loved having every single one of your dancers and you in the same room with us. There was just an energy that just added to it. And even with the language barrier, I felt like there was a lot of communication going on. And probably that is the draw for them as well. The fact that they can come and even though that they don't speak English, they can still get the workshops. And it's amazing that they can, you know, pick up the dances, even though they aren't really understanding everything. Although, you know, a kickball change is a kickball change. Well, kickball to change, but, you know, it, but it, the language is, the terminology is all the same. So picking up the dances is not that hard. And, you know, just the, the socializing is, is really nice. Have you seen any of your students become inspired to become instructors or choreographers themselves? Of course. Yeah. Um, one of the the roles I guess that I play is is um, helping encourage new instructors or instructors training I guess and um, we haven't done one recently but we used to hold reg- regular instructor training courses um, and part of the reason we have so many instructors in our club is that we've you know spent many years encouraging instructors to um, you know start take it up and start and um, give them chances to teach um okay and i've almost always already lost part of the point of the question what was it Uh, whether whether any student of yours has maybe gone to an event and seen i'm just going to throw it out there joe doing what she does so amazingly and thought i want to do that i want to bring that to people the way that she has brought this to me and and Along with that, have you seen any other transformations made possible through line dance, whether in yourself or in others? Um, we have a number of uh, dancers who have started competing. Um, uh, one of the, the dance that I taught this week in one of the dances is called Star Ring Waltz, and it's by Toshiko Kawamoto, and she's the most amazing dancer. Um, and yet I remember when she just first started dancing, and, you know, she was an okay dancer, and then she really got into it and started training. And she became uh, the first dancer to reach, reach superstar status in the UCWDC from Japan. So, but we have uh, another woman who became Naomi, who be- become a superstar level. And so we have a number of uh, competition-level dancers who still dance socially, and uh, they're instructors as well. And they help train uh, other dancers or instructors in our club who are interested in uh, making their dancing better, even if they're going to compete or not. 
I love it. Um, I've just recently started actually solo line competition in UCWDC. Um, and so that's really cool to hear. I'm actually curious because there are some, in my experience, small groups of people in the U.S. Now, again, my experience, limited, um, that are really, really focused on the idea of what potential they have and honing that through technique. There's a lot of dancers that just want to dance the dance. Um, do you find that it's kind of the same over with uh, your dancers in Japan or is it kind of split or is it the opposite way um, when it comes to technique? Overall, it's it's kind of basically the same. I don't think everyone is interested in technique, but I would like to think that in our club at least, because we have a, a number of really good dancers partly and because we've brought over a lot of really good instructors who uh, one of the things that we always ask our instructors to do is to give as much technique information as possible. And at least the people who attend our event want that. That is something that they eagerly look forward to. And, for example, um, Scott taught a really easy beginner dance, but then he threw in all this really cool styling that made it really, really, you know, so much more than it was. And um, and And we got a lot of favorable comments about that, and it's like, uh, people seem to enjoy that. And so, therefore, I think, at least in our area, uh, the dancers expect a certain quality uh, of dancing. And, and um, I think, I hope that our instructors all try and encourage good foot placement and good, you know, body mechanics. And uh, it's something that we try and stress a lot. And we are blessed with having some really good dancers who are also instructors and who are very uh, willing to give of their expertise and knowledge. That's so exciting. It definitely sounds like um, I need to come and visit. <laughs> I think that that's definitely my kind of event. I love the I love when instructors can integrate technique as you're learning the dance because for me it makes it easier to know as I'm learning this, like how to place my foot or where to put my weight. Or even I know you were taught doing some arms today, which the waltz was absolutely beautiful. I am so grateful you brought that over because I was able to work on my waltz technique during your lesson because the steps were just so accessible. And then you added the arms into it and you showed different things and you talked about um, the twinkles. And so like that's something that I really, really personally value and appreciate. And it's so cool to see that there are people who still do that and still value that as well. Um, now, with that said, how how do your dancers tend to adapt to the different styles of dance like between the waltz and the funky and the street and the salsa kind of rhythm um is it something because they have the technique experience they're pretty good i mean you know you did say that they're willing to try just about anything which i think is awesome um how do they personally kind of handle that um at the again, at the risk of sounding snobbish, um, something that will often bother me or all the videos on YouTube where there's no distinction in styling between the different rhythms is something that that bothers me 
it's like maybe they know the steps really well, but all of the dances look the same. Um, you know, the cha-cha should look different than a West Coast swing should look different than a waltz should look different than a funky, you know. But a lot of times people are just so into the steps that they don't really seem to, to me, pay enough attention to the other things that should be different. Um, one of the hard things of, as an instructor is, you know, I don't have a background in all of those different styles necessarily. And so I'm not sure that I'm always an adequate instructor, but but I know that I certainly try and stress um, the differences as well as I can when I'm teaching. And, and um, you know, this is a smooth dance. We should try and move like this for this dance. And, uh, you know, waltz should have some rise and fall. And so this is what we should do and try and get some of that. And, okay, now this is a more of a cha-cha kind of dance. And so I want you to try and put in some hip motion here. And, and uh, it's something that I think, at least in our area, we try and... Uh, accentuate and and hopefully be able to teach as much as we're able to a friend of ours was actually mentioning yesterday that he would like to learn more about the different styles and be able to practice that that difference but finances prohibit him from being able to invest heavily into private lessons and i'm curious what would you say are the best bang for your buck resources for learning those different styles, whether it's a video tutorial series or a book that you'd especially recommend that breaks it down by diagram or just five concise personal lessons that you just have to spend your money on because that's what needs to be done. Um, I don't know that there is a, an answer necessarily like that, but um, learning from as many instructors as you can that have that knowledge. You know, Someone like Joe you know, Scott or people like that who, who have the training and the knowledge and um, and just absorbing what you can from them. From them. And um, as I said, because the instructors we bring over, we ask for as much technique as we can get. Um, you know, we try and up, soak up as much of that as we can. Also, as I said, we're because we have some competition dancers in our club, they have invested heavily in, in all kinds of training and, and they are... Uh, generous about passing on that knowledge so so we are very fortunate in that regarding the politeness thing uh, that you've mentioned uh, earlier I know that in pro wrestling sometimes wrestlers will think that they are doing it wrong because no one is reacting people are being very quiet they're watching the match they're not disruptive and is this in Japan the, talking about Yes, yes, this is in this is in Japan, uh, where they will find a very stark contrast when uh, compared with the United States. United States sometimes they'll chant, and you know the the audience almost becomes part of the show in that way. Whereas in Japan, they are enjoying it, but they're just not making a lot of noise about it because they they want to respect the entertainers. And I'm curious for dances like, say, Lonely Drum, where in the last couple counts they go oop oop, or Rocket to the Sun, where they go whoop whoop. There are these there are these dances where audience participation is often encouraged, and even when it isn't explicitly encouraged, people will find some fun thing that they can chant or shout, and then maybe it catches on, and everyone in the room starts doing it. Do you find that that is the case in Japan, or do they prefer to focus on the steps? Um, 
sometimes it's like pulling teeth. Um, and, and when instructors come over, a lot of times they will be frustrated in that they have, well, number one, because they don't understand the lyrics to the songs. Um, you can't really play with that at all. So, you know, the words or things like that um, are just over their heads totally. Um, and um, getting, th- so you can, sometimes you can get them to make noise. It's, it's, um, especially when guest instructors come and they encourage them, they can be surprised sometimes what they can get, you know, what kind of reactions they can get out of them. But in general, they are not real vocal when they're dancing. And, um, and in fact, just before we came here, one of the things we had a couple of practice sessions to to go review dances that we knew would be played here during open dancing. And I actually specifically told some of the dancers, I said, I want you to pay attention. And in fact, I mentioned both you two as examples of, I knew that you would be playing with the music and stuff. And I said, I want you to, to watch this and see how you can play with the music. And Japanese are not really good at that. It's not it's not their specialty, I wouldn't say. And so I said, you know, pay attention to some of the, the noise making and, and the things like that. And let's see if we can take some of those back with us. So actually, that's something we talked about. I know that uh, Megan recently has discovered ways that you can play with the dance Swing Your Chains. And she has found lots of instruments or lyrics that she can hit in the music. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um you know, you brought up a really good point in the idea that they don't understand the lyrics. And it never, it never occurred to me, like, what a difference that would have made in my own dancing. Um, because obviously I have the privilege of understanding a mass majority of the dances out there. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm tempted personally with that in mind to start looking at trying to ignore the lyrics themselves and just listen to the instrument and wonder like what I can do to maybe just hear like the cymbal or the drum or something like that to where I can hit certain things that maybe that could be something that could be translated to the Japanese dancer or even just the non, um, you know, English speaking dancer. That's definitely something that I might, I might have to practice. Um, one of the many, many roles I have as an instructor is uh, it's often my job to try and tell people what the words to the songs are because they're usually interested. My Uber driver was like, oh, because it's so fun. And it's like, I'm laughing as I'm dancing, but they're totally not getting any of it. You know, they would have, they don't even know what my Uber driver means, let alone any of the other lyrics in the song. And so, um, you know, a lot of times I wish I could translate all of the lyrics for them. But, um, you know, at our club and when I go up and uh, go to workshops in Tokyo, for example, I will often, um, they will ask me to tell you, to tell them, you know, okay, what is this song about or you know, I can't translate all of the lyrics, but at least the general gist of the of the song and what what it's about. Because a lot of times it can sound like a very up tempo song, and yet it's actually about, you know, my boyfriend broke up with me and I'm heartbroken. You can't really tell just from listening. So, yeah, a lot of times they're surprised by the lyrics. Or now, I'm curious: has that actually? helped you as a dancer yourself because you now have to really think about what the song message is 
and what they're trying to portray. And then maybe that helps you in your dancing and like getting lost in the music or expressing it differently. Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Nice try. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, But it, it does make me listen. For example, if I'm going up to Tokyo uh, to attend a workshop there, I know that I'm going to be asked about the words to the songs. And so it makes me listen to them at least um, so that if I am asked, I'm able to, to explain. Because sometimes if I haven't really listened, you don't always listen to the words to songs, um, especially if it's one that I'm not real familiar with. You know, I may have listened to the song once, but I haven't really paid attention. And so it will often make me pay attention to the words at least. There's actually, I would say, an equivalent of that in the United States right now, where there's a quiet but enthusiastic subculture. Maybe it's become more main culture than I'm aware of, but um, there's a group, a scattered group of of people who are into K-pop, which is Korean pop music, and J-pop, which is Japanese pop music. And I think it has happened in parallel with the sound of our American music charts, going sort of away from happy, bubbly, really bouncy pop music that used to be more popular in the late 1990s, uh, early 2000s, even as recent as you know 2008 to 2010 with Lady Gaga. Lately, there's been a lot of this sort of, I guess it's called like chill pop and a lot more hip hop. And there are some people who just really like the sound of jump up and down music and they don't always know what the words mean but they know that it sounds fun to dance to so you know they can make some of the the sounds that are in that language without having to directly translate and yet as fun and as dancey as a lot of that can be there also seems to be a sort of prevailing sound in worldwide line dance culture. Like when you look at the charts, there are certain artists that keep coming up, uh, musical artists and styles of music that are almost guaranteed to have a dance choreographed to it and then become popular because that's the sound that line dancers like supposedly. And there are other songs that, you know, would be great to dance to, but they don't quite fit in. Would you say that it would be worthwhile to choreograph to, say, some J-pop songs, knowing that there are going to be somewhere in the world some dancers who will understand all the words and want to dance to that, or are those dancers still just going to try and fit in with what the world is doing? Because I, I know that, you know, for me, I can look at a dance and think, oh, that's fun, but where am I going to dance it? If no one else is dancing it, should I take the time? Is it, is it do you think, a, a possibility for anyone out there uh, that something that they choreograph to J-pop, uh, do, you, do you think it would be possible for the line dancers in Japan to jump on that, even knowing that that will probably not be danced anywhere in Europe, anywhere in the United States? Of course, there are. Um, all, there's quite a few local Japanese chore- choreographers, and although they don't generally uh, choreograph to Japanese music, uh, you know the dances that they choreograph will probably not be done worldwide. Um, that's true anywhere. You know, there's local uh, choreographers, and um, and I know that there are a lot of. Um, for example, Indonesian, it seems like there seems to be, they, they choreograph quite a bit to Indonesian music or uh, 
Chinese music. I can see that some of the choreographers are are choreographing to their own local music. But it's funny in that Japanese don't seem to be interested in dancing to Japanese music. And um, we've had choreographers come over who, you know, expressed an interest in maybe, you know, finding a good song in Japanese and doing something to that. And, and I've always asked people, and I like, no, we don't really want to dance to Japanese music. So, you know, it, it's interesting that and maybe it depends on the different cultures, but it seems like uh, Japanese generally do not seem to be interested in dancing to music in Japanese. I'm curious also about the environment of dance that people prefer in Japan. For example, at some events, say in Europe, uh, award shows or whatnot, you might see the colored lights come out, the lights get dimmed, and um, then there are other people. I think we've we've spoken with people who say uh, they preferred their dancers preferred to have adequate lighting on the floor because, as they say, it's not a disco. Like line dancing is really dependent sometimes on just watching everyone around you. And if you can't see every, everyone around you because it's all dark and strobe lights are going off, then you're not going to have a good time. In Japan, what would you say the layout of a typical floor would look like for a place that's most conducive to happy, healthy line dancing? In general, for example, the hall where we have our event, there is no light switch controls. I mean, it's on or off. Those are your only choices. So it doesn't matter. We don't have a choice in that, in that it's it's the same brightness all you know in the all throughout the evening. There is no dimmer switch, and that seems to be typically true in most of the places. I think event places that they hold uh, line dance events, and so so that really is not even a factor, I guess. Interesting. Completely unrelated, what can you tell me about the gift-giving in Japan? That that seems to have been a theme at this event, and I'm curious to know more about that. It's uh, a big part of Japanese culture, um, giving gifts to people as a kind of a thank you and receiving gifts as a thank you. And uh, it's just something that's a, very much a part of their culture. And so, for example, the people who have come on this trip uh, will be expected to take... The word is omiyage. And it's a uh, souvenir would be the closest translation, but not really. And you're expected to bring omiyagi gifts back from a trip to pretty much, it used to be everyone you knew. And now people are traveling so much, it's not quite as much as it used to be. But, but you know, 20, 30, 40 people you might be bringing gifts back to. Um, you know, just small things. But for example, we'll for sure take a box of candy to our club and I will take something for, I've taken off of, I'm an English conversation teacher and I've taken off of classes for two weeks here. So I will be expected to bring a little something to all of my students and all of my dancers. And um, it's just a big part of the culture. Um, And so Japanese want to give things to people and in fact, they're uncomfortable if they can't. And so <clears throat> for this trip, for example, they all brought, they would have done it whether I would have said anything or not, but they all you know, bring all these different little gifts with them. And every time that someone gave them a ride in the car, they wanted to give them some kind of a little thank you or um, you know, pretty much for anything, they want to give some kind of a thank you gift. I love it. I love it so much. That's so awesome. Um, 
Oh, and I just totally got wrapped up in that that I forgot what I was going to ask you, actually. Um, oh. oh, there it is. Sorry. Um, I was curious. And now, I'm obviously, you can only speak for your particular experiences. Um, what is the Japanese take on themes or theme nights? Because I know here it's hit or miss with any given dancer, whether they're all for it or they're like, why am I wasting my time and money? Um, we've tried doing themes and we have sometimes, but uh, they're not so big on it. It's it's not the sort of thing that they're necessarily comfortable with. Um, especially like the... For example, at our event, we will ask people to get a little bit dressed up for the party Saturday night. Um, but for example, this weekend, the Saturday night theme was light up the dance floor. And they asked people to bring, you know, light up blinky things. And, um, you know, most of the people in our group didn't have anything. So we actually purchased things just just for this event. And And I think they enjoyed getting dressed up in them. But probably they will never wear them again, you know, back in Japan. So... Um, Japanese are not what's the word I want they don't really want to have attention paid to themselves they kind of want to all kind of blend in that's part of the way their their DNA works and so there's an expression in Japanese that the nail that stands out will get pounded in and so that you know that's sort of the way it works there and so no one really wants to stand out usually and you know, the whole thing of getting dressed up in costumes, it's sort of the point is to stand out, you know. And so maybe that doesn't really go with their traditional culture in many ways. You can do, you know, let's all wear, let's try and wear, for example, to our spring party, we'll, we will ask people to incorporate some spring colors into their clothing. That's, that, something like that is within their reach, but, but fancy dress, not so much. Are there additional traits that you have come to appreciate since becoming more acquainted with Japanese culture that you would like to see spread, whether you know realistically or not, practically or not, uh, beyond just Japanese culture itself? Well, you know, you asked about the politeness, and I think that's an ingrained part of their culture, uh, something that people often comment about. Um, and I think their general... That what goes hand in hand with that is their consideration for other people and being aware of other people and trying to be considered of other people. I think that probably all in all, that's something that Japanese, that, that's a good part of their culture. And I think that something that they would get sort of star bonus points for maybe. Is there anything that in a much broader, more general sense, you would like to see permeate the line dance culture? If there were a message that you could share with everybody who is listening right now, as well as everyone who isn't listening right now, that maybe someone who is listening can tell them about, uh, is there anything that you would like to put out there, almost like a, a virtual billboard that we could all see as we're driving down the highway of line dance, looking at that, thinking, oh... I should think about that some more. Hmm. Let's see. I don't know if this is exactly what you're looking for, but um, something to think about is incorporating travel and line dancing into a joint package. And um, the thought that 
you could travel somewhere and dance at the same time and incorporate your vacation and your dance together like we have done this week. And that, you know, that would be a really good way to come to Japan is to come and attend a line to dance event and stay on and travel around the country a little bit and uh, think about, you know, uh, merging, merging your two interests possibly. Yeah, I've thought about how it would be nice if we had someone on the inside with like Alaska Airlines or American or somebody who could just, you know, work all the numbers and tell us all the right times to punch this or that button so that we could all get to all the events that we want to and it would be just easy for everyone. You don't have to think about it. You just click the green button and you have your hotel, you have your flight, you have somebody you're staying with that you know and you just show up and everything's set. Um, of course, I don't have that magic button, but I think, but I think for me, I know that probably one of the most wonderful things that have, has come out of my many years of line dancing is for sure all of the friends I've made literally all over the world. And in addition to, to things like Facebook that help you keep connected with all those people and keep that connection going, which perhaps if it was just old fashioned letters probably wouldn't be happening. Um, I have such a wealth of friends everywhere. And so when I travel, I almost always know someone, um, you know, locally, and I am able to spend time with them and hook up with them. And uh, I'm not much of a tourist. I don't really enjoy going places just for touristy things. Um, I really want to go see people. And, and I have such a wealth of people that I can want to and can and uh, have the uh, possibilities of going to see now that it's like oh it's just enriched my life so much i think megan and i would echo that sentiment in that we are guilty of at very many events <laughs> never leaving the hotel never leaving the ballroom if we can at all help it and you know only retreating for food and naps and even you know the the thing that people call sleep at the end of the night that's a nap because we're up till 5 a.m and then we, we come down for workshops as early as we possibly can. Uh, yeah, like there, there are these things that people have told us about that happen outside, like bridges and skyscrapers and art galleries and monuments, and we just wouldn't know anything about that. But, you know, if we had some of, uh, of our friends to go with and, and share that experience with you, we might, we might uh, consider doing that in the future. Now, if somebody wanted to make friends with you on the Internet, what would be the best way that somebody could get in contact with you? Uh, probably via Facebook. Um, I'm the only, my name is Martha, M-A-R-T-H-A, Ogasawara, O-G-A-S-A-W-A-R-A. And I believe I'm the only Martha Ogasawara on Facebook. So I should be relatively easy to find. If you're the only one on Facebook, there's there's a possibility you are the only one in the world. It could be, yeah. <laughs> are there any final thoughts from Megan before we get to our Final question. Yeah, it actually goes back a little ways. Um, I've been meaning to ask. I was I was curious on how many people roughly would you say make up your club? I was actually wondering because obviously, like we talk about our line dance club at Sonoma State University, but we're talking a handful of people. I'm sure that yours is not just a handful. So I was curious, like roughly if you had a number or even exact number, which would be really impressive. Uh, well, I can tell you the Nagoya Crazy Feet Line Dance Club. Uh, we just had our general meeting and I think we have 37 members. 
Yeah, so I can actually, and because because it's an actual formal club in terms of members pay yearly dues, and uh, you know, so so people are are actually members of the club. And when we put on an event, um, the members all it's the members who do all of the work for the event. So um, I think one of the characteristics of our club is that we are extremely well organized, and our events because we've been doing it for so long run very smoothly because everyone knows what they're going to do and and they just do it. Um, uh, the other thing I was wondering was, um, so you mentioned that you have a summer event and you mentioned that you have a November event. Uh, what other things do you have? Because I know back home we have a, several different uh, line dance clubs in the Bay Area that hold like um, every other Friday night dances or every Saturday or once a month or is there you guys do something more like that as well or is it just the two main events for our club specifically uh, we meet one Sunday a month and so that is our club dance day um, in Tokyo there's a lot more uh, active socials going on and because we're kind of what there is going in our area. It's pretty much what we have. Um, different instructors have different classes on different nights, and so you could go visit other classes. But as far as socials going, not much of that in our specific area. But in the Tokyo area, there are quite a few. I also belong to the Japan Line Dance Association. Um, I'm one of the officers in that, and we hold uh, workshops in the Tokyo area every three or four months and that's a nice social place to see other instructors and dancers that that come to those workshops before we arrive at that final question do you Martha have any final thoughts on your line dance journey what you've learned what you'd like to share your events our events Palm Springs winter break, inter, uh, was it, uh, interactivity between Japan and the United States, instructors, choreographers, or the food? <laughs> well, that's such a broad question. I don't really know how to answer that. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, we'll just hit the big last question, which is, if there's one dance that you can recommend right now for everyone to learn, everyone that you've seen who has even the faintest, most passing interest in line dance, something that would strike a chord in all of us, what would that dance be? I can say that um, I am a loyal fan of the, lo of the line dance podcast, and I listen to, to your podcast quite regularly. So uh, otherwise, I would have been totally stumped by this question <laughs> because I don't, I don't have a favorite dance, but, but I have to confess that I, that I thought of, I knew that I was going to be asked this question, and so I was able to actually prepare my answer. <laughs> um, and it would be the dance that I taught today at the workshop, a Star Ring Waltz by Toshiko Kawamoto. It's a 24-count, really easy uh, beginner waltz to a beautiful song by Anne Murray. And uh, it's an extremely accessible waltz, but uh, really well choreographed and really got a really... Um, good reviews today. I think many people came up and said that they really enjoyed it and you could just feel there was a really good vibe in the room afterwards. So, yes, I think anyone would enjoy that dance. All right. Well, Martha, thank you very much for sharing your time with us here on Line Dance Podcast with Megan Brasilia and 
Christopher Gonzalez. Until next time, we will see, see you on, on the, the dance, dance floor. floor. Goodbye. Sayonara, matane. <laughs>